This is Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the personal journeys of innovators and change makers. We talk to the doers and thinkers of our time to understand what motivates them and why they do what they do. Brought to you by your hosts, Anne and Strajit, and the entire CDTM podcast team in Munich. In today's episode, our guest is Vlad Lata. Vlad is not only a serial entrepreneur with founding experience at Konox as well as Avi Medical, but he is also a CDTM alumnus, where we are right now recording this podcast. Therefore, we are even more happy to get deeper insights into his journey throughout this episode. Before starting his ventures, Vlad studied electrical engineering and information technology here in Munich. His first venture, Konex, is active in the field of IoT, providing smart sensor systems and AI-based insights to the railway industry. With Avi Medical, he is now active in the optimization of the patient experience by leveraging technology. In the course of this episode, we will look into several aspects of Vlad's journey. We will start with why and how he decided to found a venture, and why he did it twice. We will learn more about operating a venture in regulated markets like the railway and healthcare industry. Afterwards, we will hear more on Vlad's perspective on leadership and changing roles, especially over the course of building and growing a company. As always, we're thrilled to learn more about his personal toolbox and we'll add it to our resources for the innovators of tomorrow in the end. Hi Vlad, we're really excited to have you here for this episode. Thank you for joining us. Hi guys, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So one question we have initially is uh, you founded a startup in the basically railway operation space called Konux. And we were just wondering, what is this, the story behind it and how did it happen? Where should I start? So with m many of these things, it usually goes back to the CTM. I was educated as being an engineer and then as an engineer, you go the engineering path. And usually it's basically you either go to BMW or Siemens, like this is everything that was told to us. And then when I was in my master's semester, I, I found CDTM. And then I think CDTM was the first place where I even started thinking about doing something else than engineering. It was never on top of my mind before I actually met the people from CDTM. And then I think in, in the context of CDTM, basically started thinking about, I could also be doing something else, but kind of at the same time, Andreas, my one of my co-founders from Konux, he was going through the same journey on the managing more side. And we kind of converged both from the same point with Dennis and Max then down the road as well, which was just about, we wanted to start a company, but it was not clear why or where or how. But the second thing that was clear for us is it has to be something that we can hold in our hands. It has to be something a little bit more uh, physical than just a, a very typical software company. These are the two elements. And then the railway found us because we initially, when we started Konos, we were trying to build systems for an industry, like any kind of analysis of sensor data. When we identified the railway opportunity as being kind of the one where we felt like the it's the biggest market, it's the biggest value we can create. It's also a very underserved market in terms of data processing. We just focused on that. So it wasn't that we actually were looking for, it's really, if you want to go really back, the Deutsche Bahn actually approached us if you want to be part of their accelerator because they were launching this new accelerator and we were a little bit hot at that point from a PR perspective. And we said, yeah, we'll join because we get 25K for free and we don't have to do anything. 
but we didn't think at that point that we will end up really doing a railway product. It was more like, let's see where this can take us as one of our many verticals, but then understanding the problems, understanding the opportunity, it was clear for us that that's what we want to build. And then we slowly got excited about healthcare. But yeah, it was never on the top of our mind that we want to do something in this space or generally that we want to do something as complicated as we ended up being. It was just, we want to start a company and it has to be something more than just software. And you know, as not everybody is familiar with CDTM Match, more listening to the podcast, just a short side note. So both are entrepreneurial programs, which you can take part in, in addition to your original studies. And I kind of wonder, you, you basically just said it was a conscious decision to found, right? After being immersed in these kind of programs, you went, okay, I want to be founder. And then you really did like a classical market analysis and just moved along or? None of that. It was more of just the opportunity presented itself and then we grabbed it. So it was like at one point, really, Andreas approached me and said, hey, what do you think about starting a company? And I was like, okay, but what are we doing? And he said, oh yeah, let's let's try to do something with sensor data. And then for me, yeah, why not? Let's do it. We didn't think so much about it. it there was no analysis on our side with basically what we did once we have made the decision was okay what's the next thing we do let's go talk to customers we approached the randomness of different companies from stuff like audi to stuff like sensor manufacturers to stuff like norbremse which is doing the brakes for trains which is going through all of our networks like both cdtm and managed more to talk to as many people as possible which we thought had some sensors with some data that we can process basically but I think at one point, before we really decided to focus completely on railway, we had 10 different verticals we were going after. It was like we had a pipeline of 3,000 customers that we wanted to talk to, that we were engaging in contracts and we were trying to close deals with, without clue what we will do with those things. So just kind of motivated by the fact that, hey, there is a benefit if you use the data and drive some decisions for it. But... Until we really found the railway application, we were just running super opportunistically after everything that had something to do with sensors and data. Would you say that there is value to keeping things unstructured in the beginning and having a lot of entropy in the process the way you guys did? Or would you suggest founders in today's date to be relatively structured with the process of finding a problem and then trying to solve it? For me, the first step is always the team. You need to have make sure that you have the right team of people around you. And that is part of the process where I would manage very open-minded. Just go out, meet people, meet someone else, meet someone else. Ask the difficult questions like, hey, why are you doing this, right? Like, why it is important for you? What do you get out of doing a company and stuff like that? Like, really having these conversations. And I think once you're past that, then I honestly doesn't think it matters what you're doing. So I think you can be super opportunistically, a strong team can solve any problem that's thrown at them. So you can be super opportunistically looking at what is the hottest thing coming out of IC or the US and can we build it in Germany or whatever. Or you can be looking after a certain technology that you really like where you say, hey, I'm a big fan of deep learning or now web 3.0 or whatever. So I don't think it matters anymore since after that. And, and then also how you do the process, if you go more through conversations and feedbacks or if you do it much more structured. But if you don't have the right team, you will see that very soon. And whatever you approach you do, you will not get to a solution. So if there's one advice I would give, people always ask me this, is focus on the people first. And once you reach, you feel like, okay, you have a point where you're really, really happy with each other, then everything else you will fall in line. Also. Kind of the comparison for me is when you build products is focused on the customer value. And if you have enough customer value in there, the revenue unit economics will fall in line. So that's at least 
what I can derive from my experience is look for the people first and then the rest will follow. And how do you know they are the right people? Do you just go on vacation? Do you work together? What is the moment where you said, okay, these are the ones basically? Like with everything in life, you have to go through experiences together to see what people are made of. At Konux, we were somehow brought together, kind of the planets aligned that we were very, very different, but with a big respect and love for each other. Right now, we're very, very close after the company, although almost all of us are doing different things. It's still that relationship, I don't know, became a, a strong friendship without us even noticing that we could be so good friends. It was appreciation. So we had to go through the process of accepting kind of who we are and our differences making us better. But I think now with my second company, if I look at Avi finding my new co-founders, this was a much more mature process in a sense that we really asked the difficult questions from day one. Like, why are you here? Like, what stresses you out? How do you react under stress? Like, how can you recognize it? What are you good at? What do you think you really want to do? And I think if you really ask these questions where people are usually kind of trying to avoid because it's difficult to be honest to yourself. But then you see if a person is really, really honest, really authentic, really reflected, then you kind of get a feeling there's they're a good person. And if, if you have these elements of just being to some degree humble, but also ambitious, being reflected, but at the same time, knowing how to give feedback and also just being true with yourself, who you are, with your good and the bad, and then you can you always can make the decision do I want it or not. But I think this this level of authenticity is necessary. The way we did it was just asking these difficult questions to each other. And why did you just say that you tried changing each other? Was that regarding I don't know C level skills or startup skills or being more corporate or what? What was it that you wanted to change about each other? We were trying to follow a, an imaginary ideal. Like you read all these articles and content about how you should behave and how you should make decisions. And then every time we read something, we felt like, hey, we are not there. You were reading stuff about, I don't know, the VP engineering of Dropbox and some guy from Google. I don't know what. Like you always felt like these are so far ahead in their development than we are that we felt, hey, we need to push ourselves even more. We need to become better. It's not becoming better later, becoming better now. And I think it's the wrong way to go, though, because you're comparing yourself with situations you cannot relate to. You don't know what these people have went through to get there. You don't know what experiences they had, both personally and professionally. You'd never ask a question, do you really want to be that? So I think we needed a level of maturity to get to where we realized, okay, hey, this is who we are as individuals, and this is what we're really, really happy with. And we can also work together really good, and everything else doesn't matter. So like we, we were trying too much to mesh ourselves into what we thought is what people want to see, instead of accepting who we are and taking strength out of that, instead of just trying to be someone who we are not, right? So Connex had four members in its founding team, you, Andreas, Dennis, and Maximilian. Why did you guys choose to found a company with a larger than average founding team? You usually hear of founding teams being maybe one founder, two founders, three founders at max, but you guys were four. How did that affect things? How did that affect the equity dynamics? How did that affect how you decided responsibilities among yourselves? So I think at the beginning, we didn't really think about the size of the team. We never actually never thought about it because... We didn't know what was average. We were just like four guys trying to do this. And and then I think also equity-wise, it was a very clearly even split. I think the additional thing there was from the beginning, we wanted our employees to be incentivized. So we created a relatively big pool, like almost 40% of the company was dedicated to be owned by employees at the beginning. Now that diluted itself a little bit over the valuation rounds, but the stock option pool, it's still there. And then I think in terms of responsibilities for us, 
we naturally gravitated towards what fitted most to our skills. And then I also learned what product actually means because from in the beginning, I knew only engineering. I didn't know that product exists or what product actually is. Dennis, it was clearly he was coming from a process standpoint. So he will be making sure that we are organized and we work the right way. Like that's what he did in his studies. And then we started in those roles and then a lot of things changed on the road. But I think it was very much driven by uh, our background and, and what we thought we can do. And as far as I know, Andreas, Dennis, and Max, they decided to stay back at Conox for quite a while. And you then founded Avi Medical instead, basically, in, in 2020. It's not such a big delta. I, I left my operational role mid of 2019. Dennis had to leave uh, mid of 2020 because of uh, health reasons. And Andreas had to, he moved also to the board, I think, somewhere in 2021. And basically, Max is the only one operational right now with the company. It was very much driven by the fact that I felt like I contributed everything that I could contribute. And I was more creating chaos than actually solving issues. So for me, it was like, okay, the company needs something else right now. There's something that I don't know how to give it to it. And that's basically steady pace. That was the point where I realized, okay, should I be doing something else? Like I was asking myself really this question. Like, is this the point where I realized that I should be doing something else? But I was, it was very emotional and I didn't know how to handle it. What you do, I talk to my co-founders, right? It's like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Like, what do you think about this, right? And what really gave me the confidence to step outside was them saying to me, it's just a job. Don't worry about it, right? Like, you've been here for five and a half, six years. Like, you put your heart into it. We know that you're not doing this because of any bad reasons. You know who you are. It will always be behind you and will always stay friends. And you always can come back to us. We'll always have your back. And this was, for me, the point where that's okay. So... I'm not hurting anyone if I'm leaving. Even on the contrary, our relationships get even more stronger. That gave me the confidence to say, okay, it's good for me to just step out. And I also, I would have felt comfortable finding something else while still working there because for me, it felt like a little bit like cheating. So it was really clear, okay, I had to step out first before I look into what I want to do next. You mentioned that you were creating more chaos than contributing productively. You're being quite humble by confessing that, but can you elaborate that to an extent? I don't understand how a founder gets from working constructively for his company to creating chaos. Like usually with the thing, many things that I say, I like to exaggerate a little bit, but what I mean by that is basically Konux. You need to imagine you're building a product which is designed today, but will be used in three years. And there's a lot of things on the line where you're building that, where you have to not change anything on the line. Although we, we are very agile, because of the sales cycles that we have with these big companies where we have like international tenders, you have to kind of know today what your product should look like that you're going to build the next three years. And I'm a person who always comes up with new ideas, so I want to change constantly things. So I was in a space where I had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And this was making me crazy because I felt like, oh, there's so much more things that we can do but also we were not mature enough as a company to say, okay, hey, we'll take another 10 million and spend it on this before we get this first revenues. So the waiting made me crazy. And I ended up getting into kind of pushing changes into things and trying to find ways. And I was realizing, okay, I'm making everyone's life more difficult because I cannot be patient. And that was for me the point where I said, okay, it doesn't make any sense. I, I see what the product and the company needs in order to be successful. And it's me that is creating the chaos. They just need to be steady, steady pace, go through the process. And that was the point where I realized, okay, before I'm kind of trying to change too many things, let me do it in a different setup where it's like right now at Avi, everything is highly dynamic. It changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Nothing is fixed and, and anything you can shape, which comes with other complexities on the other side because there's 
incredible amount of opportunities that you can go after and you need to pace yourself uh, a little bit. So you just said that you really like this basically early stage where you can build a product and have these fast cycles. But I do kind of wonder, both startups are basically in this highly regulated industries, like both railway as well as healthcare. And isn't that kind of frustrating too for you? Like, how did you deal with the challenges that, that are associated with these industries? It's not early stage, right? It's about more dynamic feedback. The difference with B2B and B2C for me is that in B2C, you get immediate feedback. And in B2B, you build a product, you need to sell it for six to 12 months, and then you get maybe some feedback. It's not a stage topic. I could have stayed at Konox another 25 years easily for me. But our customers are just used a different pace that we are that we would have wanted to have, and that made me a little bit impatient. Now on the consumer side, there is more acceptance towards faster changes. And now coming think to your question, I don't have any issues with regulations. Like for me, it's just part of the game. I don't know. It feels like if you're not trying to change stuff which is regulated, I feel like there's where the real problems are. It's like really these really regulated industries have not been penetrated enough by technology because everyone shies away from going into that because it's complicated. For me, I don't know anything else. For me, this feels like home. And even, even if I compare now Avi to, to, to Konox, although it's highly regulated for many people what we're doing, for me, this still feels a walk in the park compared to the regulation that we had before. And what we need to take care of before in terms of designing the product. We needed to make sure that the sensor doesn't explode underneath the train. Like it's just like stuff that you would not think about. Right now we have data privacy and a couple of things that we need to worry about. But if you design them the right way, then you don't need to worry about them at all. And 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 for me, it's like I've never thought about regulation as being kind of a blocker or something that I shy away from. It's just kind of part of the game. And and I feel like that's where the real challenge, the, the real changes can happen. And I can't imagine that railway-related regulations in China were any similar to the regulations in Germany. And you must have had to tweak your product accordingly. So I understand that you like the challenge of uh, having to conquer these regulations, but it must have caused your product development cycles to slow down to in order to be able to cater to all these different regulations, right? If you look at regulation, you can usually abstract it to a level where there are similarities. Because people introduce regulation to protect themselves against kind of the same dangers. So if you look at the railway space, it's all about safety. So making sure that nothing kind of goes wrong on the track. And then as we had also a big software component, it's about where does the data go and who owns the data? Because you imagine it using the Konox system, you can actually completely map out the rail network of, of a country. And that's critical infrastructure, right? So no one, for example, France shouldn't know where the rail networks are in Germany. It's, it's a very important information for the country itself. So if you understand that these are the core two things, everything else is just 10 flavors of that. But general, if you look at now at Avi, it's a lot about data privacy, it's a lot about what do you communicate to the patient in which way, like we have the benefit that we communicate through the doctor. So if you abstract it, you always find the similarities, and then if you design for those, and then everything else is just some, some minor adjustments that you need to do. Try to understand the similarities and then design for those, and once you've done that, the rest of the job becomes much more easier. 
Okay, so that is the story of how you sort of maneuvered your way around regulations when it came to Connects. We heard a similar instance in case of Avi. We found out that uh, you had to basically purchase a hospital in Germany in order to stay compliant with the policies. Can you first of all explain to our listeners what this policy is and then tell us how you manage this entire uh, policy-related obstacle? If you want to reimburse in Germany with the statutory insurance, which is the GKV, as we call it, which is the nine, like 90% of people in Germany are insured like that, right? This is the insurance which is subsidized by the state. There are certain rules in place which allow only doctors which operate on certain licenses to do that kind of reimbursement. Or the alternative is, and this is the only other option, you are a hospital which has subsidies like practices as subsidies. So basically you're part of the inpatient care versus the practice is part of outpatient care. So you need to be part of these two. But if you're not a doctor, you cannot become a doctor real quick. So that's, that, that's impossible to do. And even if you would be, then the whole enterprise is, is linked only to you. So you couldn't get investors in, you couldn't get stock to employees and so on and so forth because it's only, it has to be 100% owned by the doctor. And the alternative to that is basically you uh, acquire a hospital or own a hospital and this hospital has subsidies as the practices and only in that way you get to access the 90% market in Germany, which is the reimbursement market, right? which is the market where you want to be in because that's the biggest market basically. If you out of pocket is neglectable in Germany. So if you want to be part of the market, this is the only way you can do it. And once that was clear to me, it was clear what I had to do. I had to acquire a hospital and then no clue how to do it. But like with many things in life, you you go from one person to the other person. I really, and this is something I learned I learned with Konux, is that one person can lead you to another person. If you really, really are kind of following up on these connections and really making sure you are in front of everyone, maybe a little bit even frech, we would say in Germany, like a little bit not nice, right? Like you really, you're pushing yourself through these contacts. You will get at one point to the person that you need to talk to. And the same happened with Avi, right? So I, I started with basically just randomly writing people on LinkedIn, which I thought that could help me. Not all of them responded. Some of them would responded. Then I talked to them. I met them. I then asked them to introduce me to other people. And then those people introduced me to other people. And, and kind of doing this for three to six months, you get to a point, if you're doing it really, really kind of actively, I got to a point where I actually knew every CEO of every hospital chain in Germany. And then at that point, it was clearly just asking, hey, do you guys have a hospital that you want to sell? Because there's also known in the market that these guys want to sell some of their hospitals to kind of clean their P&L and so on and so forth. So then I had I started having options in front of me where basically it's like, okay, hey, these are some potential acquisition targets. And then we, we had to find some consultants which could help us to evaluate those and kind of just get through due diligence. We were going looking at hospitals, but what were we looking at, right? I was looking, I was walking through there with a mask on, uh, with like a whole doctor's equipment on, but I was like, like, what am I looking at? Like, this is good, bad? I have no idea. We found out people that could do that evaluation for us. And then a long negotiation part, man, like, which, which cost me at least two vacations with a lot of back and forth, with a lot of random requests. I've really, I haven't seen much more randomness than negotiation with people in the medical field. And, and it was clear that we had to jump over this hurdle before everything that we want to do. After we did it, everything fell in line afterwards. But yeah, I wouldn't say there's a clear plan or playbook how to do it. Just kind of go through people, like go through one person to the next one and be just ask a lot of questions uh, and request things. I think this is where you have to be a little bit less humble and also just requesting. Like, yeah, can you please introduce me to that person, right? Can you please make it, can you do it tomorrow? Can you do it today? Just 
And people usually end up saying yes, or at least many people I've met end up saying yes. And how do you even raise money for this kind of thing? For buying a hospital, do you go to a VC and say, hey, I need a few, uh, a few zeros to get my hospital to then start my startup in the, like, that, that's a bit of a hard story to sell, I guess. Yes, but you always sell the story of the bigger picture behind that. The hospital, we like to call it a pay to play fee. So it's basically, it's what you need if you want to play in this market. And I think if you put it in perspective, like we paid so a little bit over 6 million for our hospital in the perspective of how much startups are raising today and how much money is being in the market is neglectable. And, and it, you're also buying a business which makes revenue. So you're not buying something which is basically just going to eat money from you. So if you have this element saying, okay, hey, if you need it because we cannot do it. It's like a bank license. We have to have it because if not, we cannot operate. But once we are in there, we can do so many nice things. It's it's a business which generates revenue. So we're not losing money, so to say, while doing it. I think you find, and also in the bigger picture, is kind of really neglectable. So like if I look at the amount of money Avi Medical raised today, right? And, and we're just at Series B, that 6 million was less than 10%. It will not make a difference down the line, but it's so important at the beginning. And I think then you just need to find the right investors to understand that because the investor really looks 10 years down the road, will understand it. Someone who's really very conservative, very risk averse will not understand it. Overall, it sounds like a very capital intensive business model. And I understand why you had to purchase the hospital for regulatory reasons. But but what about the general practices? Why could you have not just partnered with existing practices? And why did uh, why did you have to set up practices of your own? It's very easy. If you look at the way money flows in the healthcare space, it's a provider-driven market. If you look at, if you look at the market of selling software into healthcare, is Europe-wide a $5 billion market. If you look at the market of just primary care in Europe, it's over $100 billion. From a business standpoint, for me, it was just not attractive. It felt like, hey, I need to do so much to get to any kind of relevant revenue. Like Just to give you a comparison, if I have... A hundred practices in Germany, which is nothing because you have 28,000 in total. So a hundred is basically Innenstadt München, so to say, right? So it's just like a, a really like a, a neglectable amount in the market. You're already making a hundred million in revenue, which is kind of the sweet spot where every startup wants to get to before they get public. But then if you just have a thousand, which is again, less than 10% of the market, you're making a billion in revenue. Like doing that with selling software, you would have to own 20% of the European market. And I'm talking about, I could do a thousand practices only in Munich. You cannot compare it to each other. So for me, it was clearly, I want to play in the biggest market possible, not in the easiest market possible. This is the difference. And then because I want to play in the biggest market where the biggest money gets spent, I need to take some things into account. But that's where I think we can really create the biggest also change. Because I'm not a big believer in selling software to someone and then expecting them to change the way they work. I don't think this works. I think it, you, it just takes a lot of time. And also, it surprises me that so many investors don't understand how important professional services are when you sell B2B software because that's what you need to show people how to change the way they work. Now, in the medical space, it's even harder. You're trying to convince someone who has been going through this education for 10 years, like your studies plus his residency, and then everyone he meets and she knows are telling her that's how you should do stuff. You're trying to sell their software that will, that should completely change the way they do things. Never going to happen. So that's why I, I much more stronger believe in to get people in the same boat. Make sure, hey, we are all in the same boat. We all feel the same pain. 
if you help us, if you're willing to adjust around suggestions that we have, we will make your life also easier. And you build the product together with them, not you're not trying to sell them on your product. I think this is much more powerful as a change because you can fundamentally adjust behaviors and those behaviors, if people really embrace those changes, then they become advocates of what of your change. And then at one point, you'll get to a point where everyone else wants to be like them. And then you can just easily sell your software because at that point, it doesn't matter anymore because people just want to be like your employees. And for us, this was a much more efficient way to get to where we want to go. And that's better medical outcomes for patients. And we can do it better if the doctors are in the same boat with us than if we would be just like a random participant from the sidelines. I kind of wonder how do you align the vision you have for medical with the reality of still having the same people on board that are working as a general practitioner or are general practitioners and also still very stuck in this old reality. And for instance, when I was at Avi Medical, they actually lost one of my appointments and then told me, well, you should have just called, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that, that's not what you want to, to do there. So I'm really curious how you face that because I think change there just takes time, not just vision. So. Yes, and don't get me wrong, there's still stuff we need to get better at. So like, I'm still waiting for the day where I can turn off all the phones and all the practices. But the problem is that we, or not the problem, the reality is that we have a lot of also older patients which like to call. And we'll have, have a system where we have call center where you can call so it doesn't end up in the practice anymore. Like there's a couple of things that we're doing there to improve there. But I get completely where you come from. I think you're underestimating a little bit the people as well. Because if you look at the newer generation of doctors, like people that have been finishing the residency, let's say in the last three to five years, they are also super annoyed. So they feel like they have a lot of these tools which they use in their normal life. For example, you use an online banking tool to do your finances, you book your vacations through Airbnb, you have Uber to call your taxes. So a lot of these things that have, have already penetrated the way they live, but none of these have penetrated the way they work. So they, they feel like, hey, I'm living in the present, I'm, I'm working in the past. So like that's the general state of state of mind. And the second thing that comes with that is that our generation, or like let's say my generation, is relatively averse to risk. So people, there's very few people out there that still want to take risks. You don't want to own anything. People don't want to get loans from a bank. They want to be super flexible to move around anytime they want. They want to be super kind of being able to focus on their life instead of work. But the needs of an unemployment has also changed. So people want to be super flexible, move around, and kind of have a really nice work environment. So if you combine the fact that they are unhappy with the current status quo, but they also don't want to take loans anymore to own their own practices and do this on their own, you end up in a very nice sweet spot for us because that's actually exactly what we're offering. We say, hey, come to us. We make sure you create a work environment where you really work in the present, but at the same time, we give you all the flexibility. You can work 20 hours if you want or 30. If you want to move to Berlin, move to Berlin. If you want to move to France, at one point you can move to France. You can still work at Avi Medical in there. You can take maternity leave. It's a big thing for many, like 80% of graduates in medicine are females. And many of them will have children around the age of 30 to 35 to 40. But in the medical space, many people don't see that as, an, as a good thing, right? They, they actually advise you against hiring women because they get pregnant. We are embracing that, saying, okay, of course, come to us. Let us create an environment how we can also make that really nice for you. We have now doctors which are actually pregnant and they do telemedicine calls from homes. So they want still to work, but they want an environment where they can do it in their, at their own pace, in their own time. And we are creating that. And I think once you create that, you get then as a return the openness to try new things. So I think it's first you need to create an environment where people like to work. But I think it's coming back to kind of simplifying. It's just 
people have changed and doctors have changed and their needs have also evolved. I think we offered them something that really fits to their needs, flexibility, but also using modern tools. And in the return, we get willingness to use our tools and kind of try to do things differently. You've mentioned a lot of details that are quite specific to the medical industry. And it's great that you've uh, made all these learnings along the way. But I want to also maybe reverse to the time when all of this began. So you said in the middle that when you were visiting these hospitals for acquiring them, you really didn't know what to look for because, of course, you don't have a background in the medical field. So how did this decision come about in the beginning when you decided that, all right, this is a field that I'd like to found a startup in? Again, it was something that found me rather than me founding it. So between Konux and, and Avi, I spent some time in the US with my very, very good friend, Flo Hillen, which is also CDTM. He's, he was my class. And he's also doing a startup in the US in the, in the medical space. And through him, I was by design only with people that are doing stuff in the healthcare space. All his friends were doing in the same space that he was doing something. And for me, it was okay at that point. I started looking into trying to understand why is everyone so excited about this space? Uh, I had no clue. And going into, I felt a lot of things done not the right way or like just completely done wrong, as I've seen also in the railway space, like data usage being very, very bad. Like we expect so much things for, from the doctors, but their tools are like designed in the 70s and the 80s. Generally, the experience was broken. It felt like it, it became a, a production line where patients were kind of pieces of metal kind of on the conveyor belt going through checks and stuff like that, but no one was really caring about long-term outcomes, right? Or how do we really make people live better and have just a better outlook on life? It was very industrialized, it felt. And that for me kind of screamed as it has to change. It screamed that there's a huge opportunity here. And specifically with something so dear to people like health, you can build something very powerful. And then my second thing was, is this something that I can see myself doing now the next 5, 10, 15 years? The answer for that for me was yes, because it, it's something which is super important. And I felt like, okay, I can contribute something with what I already know. So then, as I usually then do, when once I've convinced about something, 100%, 150% go full throttle and try to learn as much as I can, as fast as I can. Thank you so far for telling us the stories of your two startups. And you basically just provided us the perfect transition to talk a bit more about your experience in actually leading those companies and becoming a leader in that sense. So as I just said, you've been a student in the past and then moved on to being CPO and CTO in Konox and now you're CEO. And I wonder, how did you make the jump? Like, are there any skills that you've had to learn along the way? Is it a natural trajectory? How does it happen? So I could tell you the story that it was uh, very planned and step-by-step, step, but it wasn't like that at all. When we started Konox, it was a lot really jumping into cold water. Like really, I did incredibly amount of mistakes. So I think on my first 10, 15, 20 hires, I ended up firing everyone after two years. And, and it was not their fault. It was my fault because I just didn't know who I need to hire. I met someone who was cool on the street. Hey, you were hired. I, I, I just didn't have any skills. I, I, I didn't know anything. So it was really learning the hard way and making a lot of mistakes and then kind of analyzing them and, and trying to not make them again. And I'm pretty sure I made them a couple of times again after that, but going through the cycles again and again. And I think the only thing that I can say from kind of the, the really the context time, which was probably the time where I made most of my mistakes is I was incredibly 
willing to take feedback. And for me, up to the point where I had really development plans for myself or what, what do I want to improve, right? And I was doing this on a yearly basis, on a quarterly basis, like from everything from how much sports do I want to do, in which area do I want to grow in terms of my leadership or management skills, like really looking for mentors. Another big thing, I always had every year at least three to four different people that I was talking to about different topics. I still do that today. I feel like for me, the biggest, easiest way for me to learn is from other people that have been there before me and sharing my kind of challenges with them and learning from their experiences or, or how they would do it, right? So a lot of feedback, a lot of self-reflection and just kind of being hard on myself and then a lot of mentoring and, and basically people showing me the way. I think this was my first, I would say, four to five years. And then I realized there's also a big value into just being yourself and understanding who you are and embracing that because it makes you very authentic. And then once I realized that, that was a little bit kind of an eye-opening moment for me. And then I switched a little bit from trying to mold myself to more like, what does the feedback I get mean for me? Do I want to change that way or do I don't want to change that way? And if I don't want to change that way, just communicate back and be very transparent about this. Everyone that sits out there and says there's like playbooks and stuff like that. I don't believe those, man. It feels like for me, it was a lot just learning by doing and, and really going through a lot of walls and being very hard on myself. Everyone just always talks about the nice part of the ride. No one really spends time saying, okay, how hard it is in certain situations. I think it builds your character up if you go through those situations a lot. But it was a lot of doors that I had to go through full on, head on. A lot of slaps I earned myself on the wrong things that I did or I said, right? But for a long time, I really let it go really deep to myself. Really like kind of questioning about, do I need to change? But I think there would be one advice that I would give is basically take the feedback, take the mentoring, really to kind of reflect about yourself, but don't think that you are wrong as an individual. So you were the CTO and the CPO, so the technology officer and the product officer at the, your first startup, Konux. And then in the second one, you became the CEO. Now, I can understand that in the first instance, when you were founding Connex, this was probably a more impulsive decision. You also explained how you guys decided your roles. But I imagine that when you became the CEO of Avi Medical, this was probably a more conscious decision. So how did that decision come about? Can you tell us more about that? So funny story, I'll tell you about CTO, the CPO. At Connex, when we gave everyone a title, like I took the CTO title, but I was never a CTO. For me, the CTO is the person who really drives technical excellence. And I was understanding a lot of technology, but I was never the best developer or the best architect or anything like that. I had that title for a very long time, but I was never really doing the job. And during time and talking to people and so on and so forth, I realized what I was doing is more like a CPO role than actually a CTO role. And that's when I added the CPO to the CTO, just a kind of context to, to that. Now, when I started Avi, I think over Conux, I learned what really gives me energy. And really, the, one of the biggest things that I get energy from is hiring and making sure that we have really the right set of team around to, to tackle a certain problem, independent if it's a leadership team or like I'm doing engineering hiring or product, product managers hiring, whatever. Like this really gives me a lot of energy. And also, the second part is removing blockers, like really making sure like, hey, how can we move this big stone which is in front of us to move even faster, like finding shortcuts onto our path. And... As we are in a very also regulated market, it was clear for me that if I would be really leading, leading product, I will try to find shortcuts all the time. It's not necessarily maybe the right thing to do in a couple of these things. We want to make sure that we really have the data privacy in place and data protection in place, stuff like that, like, because I would default to more and more shortcuts. But more importantly, I felt like I can provide a better service for the company 
in the CEO role than in any different role. I think the only situation where I would have taken a different role would have been if one of the people that I really, really looked up to, like one of my mentors would have said, hey, I'm starting a company, you want to join. And, and this was one of the things that I was considering before joining Avi, right? I was conversating with like the iPad founder, right? Which is a mentor of mine, the guy Bulent, which was the fifth employee at SpaceX, also a mentor of mine. I was trying to work with them. And for them, I would have taken any role basically. Because there's just infinite respect towards these people and what they've done and what could have learned from them. So that would have been probably a situation where I've taken a different role. In other situations, I felt like I can deliver the most value from this position. So the next question that we have for you is about managing conflicts within the founding team itself. So we mostly have theoretical understanding of what it means to found a venture, but we watched a couple of videos and a couple of them are from Y Combinator. And some of them actually talk about the fact that the role of the CEO is important so as to be able to provide the tiebreaker vote in case of conflicting with other co-founders. Would you agree with that approach? And is that how the CEO's role is in practice, providing the tiebreaker vote? I think the formulation is a little bit too simple. I would rather say it's the CEO's role to be the warden of the vision. It's the CEO's job to make sure that the company stays on track, but it also moves forward. And I think one of the most important things that you can do as a CEO is to have an incredibly strong opinion, which you can fundament in information. So it's not just about, hey, it's my personal view, but it's basically there's data behind your view and be vocal about that. Because I, I feel like this, it gives people also direction. I think the worst thing that you can do is basically trying to crowdsource all decisions, right? Saying, okay, hey, what are we doing here? Let's ask everyone what you should do and then we'll figure out. Because then you end up in a situation where you transfer your insecurity onto everyone, basically. And then it makes it incredibly difficult for things to move forward. For me, it's less about the tiebreaker, but more about that responsibility of just making sure things are moving forward all the time. And you are that stable rock that people can go to to orientate themselves if they don't know if I'm going the wrong way or if I'm going the right way, basically. Like being that compass, in a sense, for the company. Basically, for me, it's not enough to be drawn by something. When I talk to my engineers, do you really want to manage people or do you want to do technology? And everyone says, I want to manage people. But if you really ask them why, there's no reason why they want it. Just because it seems to me somehow that out there, managers are way better seen than than individual contributors, which is just wrong. There's no difference. It's a different skill set which solves a different issue. But because we have this kind of image of what we think is better than something else, then people are drawn to something they might even not even like. So that's why for me also, being drawn to the power is, is the existence is real, but it doesn't take you anywhere. As a CEO, if you don't understand that it's the people that build the company, and without them, you're basically, you're basically zero. Then I think you're making a very, very big mistake. Of course, there will be tiebreaker situations where it's good for someone to make a decision. I don't think it's just true in companies. I think it's true in many, many different situations, right? I strongly believe the role in itself is actually an enabling function. Because at the end of the day, you don't touch a lot of things you don't touch anymore, right? You don't, I don't touch the product anymore as I would like to touch it. There's a lot of things that I would like to touch selfishly more. I would want to have my hands on them, but I cannot because I need to create an environment where the people that are doing that can thrive and, and see it's their own success. And I think if you don't get energy from other people succeeding, then you shouldn't do the job. Right? If, if, if it's really about you wanting to be first in line, you want to be first on the page, that's just fame. Fame for me is not interesting. 
what's really interesting if we really can have created the change or something that we can look back and say, hey, we've made trains run on time in certain areas of the countries, right? There will be much more work to do there. I can look back and say, hey, there's a group of patients which are generally healthier than before because I contributed to that. I think that's what motivates me. The perception from the outside, I think you need to be aware of it so you don't feed yourself by that, but I don't think it takes you anywhere unless the fundamentals are the right ones. And you're contributing to all this change by developing these more, I would say, digital products. And after I've stalked you a bit, I found your Instagram where you said that you're currently trying out digital minimalism. And honestly, I wonder how do these two facets go together? It's a, it's a concept which I stole from Hanno, I have to be honest. Like he has it in his WhatsApp captions. I saw it and then I, I read the book. And I was impressed by the book. It's a very easy book. It's called Digital Minimalism. But when I, while reading it, I felt like it resonates with a lot of the ways I feel. Like basically it says, use social media, but use social media with the purpose of meeting people, not just with the purpose of sitting on social media. Check. That's how I feel about it. It's so much noise on LinkedIn. So I, I deleted my LinkedIn app. I deleted my Facebook account. Only Instagram is the only kind of social media I'm kind of on in a sense. But I've also, I was following like 400 people. I reduced that to 50 people. Right? That's also one of the advice of the book saying, okay, Follow just the people you really want to stay close to and try to remove distractions as much as you can. At the same time, watch YouTube videos, but watch YouTube videos in the sense that they, it's constructive for you, that you learn something by them. So the whole concept of digital minimalism is actually saying, look at all these great developments, but see them as what they are, tools for different purpose, but not in a purpose in itself to be on those. And for me, I wrote it in my caption because when I deleted all the people that I was following, I didn't want anyone to be annoyed. So I said, I will write this in there because if someone asks me, I, I can say, hey, I've been super honest, direct about this. I'm saying I'm trying this out. I'm not really good at it. I need to give up watching series, which is incredibly difficult for me. I need at least two hours every evening to watch series when I get home. It eats a lot of my time right now. That's kind of my next to do. But I really resonated with, with the message of use the tools as tools that has a purpose on itself. And you'll get then also your life back in a sense. It talks about just go on walks and stuff like that. Like you just do other stuff besides just being completely immersed in the social media world. Now then, I guess the last part of this interview right now is talking about your tools, which is kind of obvious. All right. So for starters, tell us one book that you recommend to everybody. The one book I would recommend, and again, was recommended to me by a CDTM person, which is Philip Nagline. It's Psychology of Money. I feel like it's one of those books I read and I recommended to 15 other people because I was so impressed about it. Then they all came back to me saying, oh, it's such, such amazing book. I feel like it's just, again, it's super easy read, very, very straight to the point, not making it incredibly complicated. It's really, really easy to digest for everyone. But I really like that it's like cars you drive. It's about when you want to accumulate wealth or whatever you want to do in that regard. It's like you need to understand whatever you do, the probabilities are always going to be against you. Hearing that from someone who is very, very experienced in what they've done and so on and so forth, like the author of the book, it just puts things in a very, very relaxed perspective. Do what you love and do it really good and then kind of the success will follow. If you look at the book, that's kind of the whole messaging at the end of the day. Just do your things that you like. Understand that the market is very complex. A lot of things can happen which you cannot control. Don't try to control them and just keep moving forward. And do stuff that you, that you feel emotionally secure with. For me, it changed my view on how do I think about investing, how do I think about buying stuff, how do I think about where do I go on vacation, like a lot of the stuff, it's much more clearly to me, okay, hey, this is what I want to spend money because it really gives me a lot, 
And this doesn't make any sense for me to spend because there's nothing that it gives me. It's just pure outside validation, which you shouldn't propagate. What is an app that everybody should download and should use? So I'm a big fan of Superhuman, the email app. I was incredibly skeptical at the beginning because I didn't know if it's really worth it. But for me, emails are everything. Everything is happening in emails. Like all my to-dos are in emails. Everything is in emails, right? And it just gives me an interface and a way of interacting with, which is very close to the way I like to use computers, like much focus on the keyboard than on the mouse. So it just fits a lot with my kind of the way I work. So Superhuman is really, I can really recommend it. And what is one routine that you follow? So a couple of ones. If I start from the beginning of the day, when I wake up, I need to drink a lot of water. That's very important to me because I feel like I'm very, very dry. Then I cannot start working before I had had a green tea. And it has to be matcha or another sencha or a kind of very, very strong green tea. Before that, I don't like to talk to people in a sense, right? And then I'm happy the rest of the day. And then what I also do is when I go back home, it's super important for me that I spend at least 20 minutes to meditate. I tried it three years ago. I didn't get it. But now I half a year ago, I did like a real meditation training with a trainer. And that improved ways of how to do it. And since then, it's, it just feels necessary for me that once I come back from home, I need to shut down, kind of delete everything a little bit. And then last thing is always watch a series before I go to bed. So last thing is just cleans my head completely about everything. And then I can go to sleep. With this, we've actually reached the end of our episode as well. And all that is left is now to thank you for being here with us today and wishing you a great rest of the week. Thank you for having me. And yeah, super happy to be here. And anyone who's listening also, if I can help or anyway, just feel free to reach out, right? Like it's like Vlad at Avi Medical is my email, um, especially for CTTM. My heart is always going to be there and I'm happy to be of help to anyone. The Mostly Awesome podcast is brought to you by CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Annabel Schäfer, Frederik Junge, Kai Kirsch, and Julia Kroslovskaya. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and tell your friends about Mostly Awesome. We would like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox podcast at cdtm.de is always open for your feedback or any warm intros. Thanks for tuning in and see you in two weeks or talk to you in two weeks.